From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. I am so excited. I'm like giddy. I'm here in studio. I'm Sven Erlinson, host of the Badass Counseling Show. I'm giddy. I'm in studio with... Casey up there in the booth watching over us, omnipotent, and down here in the trenches with Rob. How are you today, young man? I'm not feeling quite omnipotent, but I'm happy that you are, because you are the star of the show. No, 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 I'm not omnipotent. Casey up in the booth is. Okay, well, whatever. (laughs) You you still are. I gotta ask, I gotta ask you, Rob. All right. What's it what's it like? I mean, you you've sat through all of these episodes and and you I mean you're always cued in on the business side of it and the work side of it, I know, but you're also an an acute listener. Mm -hmm. What's it like for you to listen to these the counseling shows, but also these lightning rounds? Well, let me tell you something. When I was in college, I was a projectionist at a summer theater, like film festival theater up in Saratoga Springs. And one week we had an Ingmar Bergman film festival. Now these are intense. Well, you know, you're Swedish Swedish, films. right? And they're totally, I mean, I'm still depressed from watching these films <laughs> over and over and over and over again. But that compared to what we hear on the show, I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> Wait, are you saying the stuff we hear on the show is nothing compared to Bergman? No, I'm saying what? <laughs> just, just the exact opposite. Yeah, we get some intense stuff, don't we? No, we do. Love well, it. it's great to have you listening in today, and we are firing off a lightning round, which, as you all know, those always get posted on Sundays, and our counseling shows get posted on Thursdays. So I'm ready to dive right in here. I've got a whole bunch of people with their questions queued up, and so we're looking at question number one, and it is... Ben, hold on a second. Before you answer, let's send you outside. I know how much you love the fresh air. So get to your first question and let's find out. Is it a tough one or an easy one? Tough one. I think we can all understand this, commiserate. True Blues asks the question, what do I do if my girlfriend says she doesn't care anymore and doesn't love me? I don't want to leave. Ugh. Um, I'm sorry. We've all been there where we've been, you've basically been dumped or are being dumped. Your girlfriend says she doesn't care anymore and doesn't love me, and I don't want to leave. The question, two things. One, we all feel bad. I feel bad for you. It sucks being broken up from. It sucks bad enough to leave someone when you care about them. You know, uh, you know, both my ex-wives, I still love them both. I'm not in contact with one of them. The other one, you know, I see regularly because we have kids together. You know, I love them both, but I'm not in love or anything like that. But it's hard, you know, walking away from a relationship. One of them walked away from me and the other one I walked away from. It's hard enough to walk away, but to have someone turn their back and walk away when you love them and still love them, that's so hard. Really. I mean, it's just, it is. It's just fact of life. And so what I hear you saying is, you know, you're in pain. You don't want to leave. Um, you don't want it to be done, but the bottom line is it is done. And so what you have to do is you have to let out all of that pain. You have to have avenues in your life for getting all of your pain out. Do you have a best friend that you talk to? Do you have some, some friends? Do you have a therapist that you can talk to? Because you gotta start, you gotta be flushing out all of that pain. You guys know I strongly recommend journaling, but particularly in cases where you've lost love, I recommend writing letters that you do not send. Write your love a, le- a letter and pour out all your feelings and not just the love feelings. See, now here's where we get into how honest are you capable of being? 
but pour out your feelings of hurt, pour out your feelings of anger, because somewhere in there, when someone walks away, it hurts enough and we're angry. Why did you leave? We could have this, we could have fixed it. It could have been better. I'm so mad at you. You've hurt my heart. You got to pour out all those feelings. And she's never going to see the fucking letter. Or he's never going to see the letter. Oh, you said it's your girlfriend. So she's never going to see the letter. So you just got to pour it out. You got to flush it out. And if you think you might give it to her, you're going to edit that letter. That's why I tell people, don't give them the letter. Because then you're going to edit and you're not going to pour out your real heart. And the purpose of writing this letter is to get your true feelings out of you so that they're no longer in you. All right. Next question. What do you guys got? One of your guys has got this for you, Sven. And he asks, how do I best guide my 19-year-old who is unemployed and asks for money? Well, the implicit in your question is that you uh, are uh, part of you doesn't want to or fears that it might be year old. And yet it's your kid. And so part of you wants to. Uh, my first question to you would be, do you want to give them? Do you not want to give them any money? What really is it? And I'm not saying you have to act on it, but you always have to ask yourself the question, what would I do if I had it my way? Not what would I, what do I want them to do? Because you can't control that. What you can control is what do I want to do? And do you see, do you guys see how those are two very different questions? When I'm in session, so I was in session today for an hour, uh, or excuse me, for two hours with one client and then three hours with a separate, separate client. And one of the things, and this actually came up and the person was struggling with, what do I do? What do I do? I said, what do you want to do? Well, I want him to blah, 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 blah. I said, that wasn't the question. I don't, I'm not asking you what you want him to do. You can't control that. I want to know what you would do. If you could have it your way and you don't ever have to act on it, what would you actually, what action would you take? What words would you say? And so my question too is, what is it you want to do or what is it you want to say to your 19-year-old? Or what is the fear that keeps you from doing that? So what we're getting at is very often, particularly in parenting, we don't parent the way we want to or we're not sure what to do. And very often what's driving the equation in parenting in particular, although it's true in any sort of relationship, What's driving it is my own feelings, that my own feelings get in the way of sort of seeing clearly in a situation. And so that would be my follow-up question. You ask the question, how do I best guide my 19-year-old who is unemployed and asks for money? Um, and my question to you is, what's your biggest fear in all of this? What is going on inside of you? And how much are your feelings gumming up this relationship? What I would honestly encourage is I would encourage you to have, to set the money conversation aside with regard to your 19 year old and have the conversation of what's going on inside of you to the, with the 19 year old. Very often that, I mean, if the person is unemployed and trying to get another job and they just want to get back to work, that's not really a problem, is it? We've all been unemployed at one point or another. That's not that abnormal. You seem to be implying that this is a sort of either a pattern or it's been going on a while. Well, now we've got something going on inside of that 19-year-old that is causing them to not seek a job. Is that what we're talking about? And if so, I would want to know if I were that 19-year-old's therapist, if I were that 19-year-old's parent, or if I were the one counseling the 19-year-old's parent, such as right now, <laughs> I would want to know of that 19-year-old what's really going on inside. Why is it you're unmotivated? Why is it that you're not going after whatever your dream is? And the notion that somebody doesn't have a dream isn't true. Everybody has a vision for what they want to do with their life. Whether they can see it or touch it or not, that's a separate issue. But I would want to know what is keeping this 19-year-old from going after what they really want. And the mere fact that they're unemployed, oftentimes kids that age will shut down their lives as a way to say fuck you to somebody or feeling pushed. I would want to know, are you pushing your child? 
And if so, in what way is it? And is this a new phenomenon? Because in all likelihood, if you're pushing at 19, you might have been pushing long before that. And the question becomes, is this child not working as a way to rebel against you? Or is it possible that this child can't even hear? And I use the word child for a 19 year old because it is your child, so to speak. Um, not so to speak. It literally is your child. But, um, I would want to know what is going on inside of that child that they can't hear their own voice and be going after their own dreams. There's something obstructing that 19-year-old, or it could be a 42-year-old, that is something obstructing that person's ability to hear their own voice and have the courage to heed that voice. That's the real issue. The issue isn't whether or not I give this kid $100. The issue is what's keeping this person from moving forward. Because you can solve this issue right now of, gee, I'll give him $100, or gee, I won't give him $100. But that doesn't get at the deeper issue of, is this person passionately going after something in life? And maybe the passion is, you know, I've always wanted to be a Sparky. You know, I've always wanted to be a fucking electrician. Well, why aren't they doing that? Or maybe they can't even hear the voice of what they really want to do, which very often implies that the parent's voice is too loud in their own head. So there are a bunch of questions that need to be asked. But the real issue is what's going on inside of the kid that they know that they don't have a vision right now. Something is blocking their own voice and that has to come out. And so the other question that I would be asking of you, if you were just, uh, you know, my client is, are you trying to fix your kid or are you listening? And you guys have heard me say it a million times. I wrote it in my last book and this was taught to me by my mother who died at the age of 93 last year. And she did this work long before I came around. And she always used to say, Sven, children want to be heard, not fixed. What I've discovered in my counseling practice is it ain't just kids. We want to be heard, not fixed. And very often the problem will solve itself. The solution will become clear if we're allowed to purge out our pain. Think about it. When you go to talk to your best friend about how your boyfriend just left you or when you go to your therapist, what are you doing? You're purging out all your shit. And very often when we purge out all of the feelings, when we purge out what we really think, when we purge out who we really are, assuming it's safe to do so, the answers very often reveal themselves. So I would encourage you to, if you're fixing, stop fixing, stop fixing, because that's likely what's causing the shutdown in the first place and start listening more. All right, next question. Oh, wow. This is a good one. Oh, listen to this one, you guys. This is good. This is good. And by the way, it's fucking cold out here. So the jumping up and down is both excitement and cold. I've got little fucking heating things in my hands. I've got two fucking heater things in each of my shoes. Yeah, it's fucking cold. And I know you up in Nova Scotia, you're laughing at me because you're at 30 below right now. And I know the Minnesotans are laughing. Yeah, it's that, that, that. But for the New York City area, last night to be one below zero, we don't get that kind of weather here. All right. Here we go. Parents pressure marriage, and I don't know how to tell them stop. I then take that stress out on my boyfriend. Ooh. That's a juicy one, isn't it, you guys? First of all, um, I admire you, Naomi, for saying that I then take that stress out on my boyfriend. So you are acknowledging a problem that you are creating in your own relationship. I respect anybody who acknowledges anytime they are part of the problem and they can articulate precisely the problem that they are bringing to a situation. So I respect that in a human being because so many people don't self-reflect. They don't look at how I'm gumming up the equation. You know, I love that old saying, I must constantly remind myself I'm part of the problem I'm trying to solve, right? So you're doing that, Naomi, so kudos to you. Now, Obviously, you don't want that. You don't want to fuck up your relationship with your boyfriend, and you especially don't want to fuck up with the relationship with your boyfriend because of some other cause. It's like getting yelled at by the home, you know, getting yelled at by your boss. You come home, punch your spouse in the face, yell at the kid, and kick the dog, right? Well, I'm really mad at the fucking boss, but I'm taking it out on everybody else. Okay, so you see the problem here, that this problem with your parents, You for those who are, didn't catch it, Parents pressuring marriage, and I don't know how to tell them to stop. I then take that stress out on my boyfriend. Okay, a number of things. One, first of all, you got to find a way, a better way of getting your stress out of you. 
And you guys heard me say it a million times. You're going to hear me say it a million more times. I strongly recommend journaling. And as I was just recommending to the other person, I strongly recommend, in this case, letter writing. Write a letter to your parents that you do not send. Flush out all of your anger. Flush out all of your rage. Flush out all of your love. Flush it, flush it, flush it. Because the more we get our feelings out of any situation, the more we see clearly, okay? That's first recommendation. Second recommendation, if you have not already, you need to apologize to your boyfriend and you need to explain precisely what's going on. Now, maybe you've already done that, but every time you do that, every time you take your stress at your parents, your anger, your frustration with your parents out on your boyfriend, you need to apologize. You need to own it. And obviously, at some point, you have to stop the fucking behavior, which is the beginning part of your question. You state, parents pressuring marriage and I don't know how to tell them to stop. May I ask you a question? Uh, and it's going to sound silly, but have you literally said to your parents, I need you to stop. Please stop. Okay. You said, I don't know how to ask them. How, I don't know how to tell them to stop. You start, I believe in the simple answer, you know, Occam's raise, right? Just tell them, I need you to stop, mom and dad. Don't pressure me anymore to marriage. It's not funny. It's not cute. You don't drive the agenda here. You need to have the courage. And what's fascinating is I'm going to assume that you already have told them that, which implies you've set a boundary and they're transgressing. They are trespassing that boundary. Okay, I'm on the edge of my property here and our certain people are allowed to transgress that boundary, such as my neighbors. Um, that my immediate neighbors, I trust every one of them. If, you know, John wants to come over and use my ladder, he knows my code to my fucking, um, garage and he knows the code for disarming my security. So he can come in, grab my ladder and I'm cool with that. And I, you know, borrow his freezer every now and then when there's extra venison or what have you. Okay. The point is certain people are allowed to transgress boundaries and certain people are not. So you say your parents pressuring you to marriage. I don't know how to tell them to stop. I'm going to assume you've already told them and yet they're still transgressing. They're still trespassing that fucking boundary, which implies you're allowing that. And that you have to then escalate to the next level. Anytime someone is not honoring your boundary, and this is so common among family members because with, with family, family often thinks, well, I can because I'm family. I get extra rights to tell you what to do. I get extra rights to say the shit I want to say, to voice my fucking opinion. No, you don't actually. You don't get the extra rights. That's the shit that causes problems in life. And so you have to, what is the next level of cost that you can employ to enforce your boundary? And that may mean reducing your um, interactions with your parents. If you have not already told them, this needs to stop. Please don't pressure me to marriage. All right. It just, I, I, I know you have your reasons. I know you think you're right. I know you think my boyfriend's a great guy, but this has to stop. It's not okay. You don't get to determine when I get married. So it has to stop. If they do not honor that, then you have to escalate to the next level and just stop interacting with them as much. And they're going to put up a fit. And the mere fact that you've allowed them to trespass those boundaries says that this has been going on a while where they've been telling you what to do, right? And that's one of the tough parts about being in teens and 20s and 30s. And it can go into 40s up to 60s or longer. This notion that parents get to tell you what to do. And that only lasts as long as you allow them. And so it really requires the courage to begin to basically teach your parents how to treat you. Teach your parents the nature of what our relationship is going to be moving forward. The, the parents from childhood run the equation of this relationship between parent and child. And now you're having to basically lead because they have failed in their ability to lead in this relationship. They're taking advantage of the followers. They're telling you, well, you have to listen to our shit. And especially on a, on a decision as colossal as marriage, no, you don't have to listen to them. And if you're not reinforcing your boundaries with regard to your parents by escalating, by pulling back from them, by spending less time with them, you're going to destroy the relationship with your boyfriend over time. 
because that stress that you're presently taking out, you're going to take out more and your parents are going to continue to pressure you. And they're going to, but what they're really doing is they are undermining your judgment. They are undermining your relationship with your own voice. They're trying to attack your own voice is saying, it's not time to get married yet. And I'm not ready to get married. My boyfriend's not ready to get married. And this is our private conversation. And you are allowing them to come in and assault it, drop bombs on that and try to blow up your voice and listen to their voice. I had someone reach out to me recently, just this week and say, Hey, Sven, you know, I live in Missouri and, uh, and this was a random person just need, wanting to talk for a bit. And, you know, I just did emailed back. I try to, you know, email what people I can, but I get fucking hundreds of direct messages and so forth every week and said, you know, I want to move to, you know, the Ozarks or whatever the hell it was. You know, it's an hour away, but my parents are saying it'll be bad for my two kids, even though there are great schools up there or whatever part of Missouri that, that she was going to move to. And uh, my parents are telling me, oh, it'll be bad for the kids. And they're really making me feel guilty and all this stuff. And I had to say to this person, you know, do you believe it's in the best interest of the kids? And she said, yes. And I said, and yet your parents have so much power over you that they they cause you to distrust your own voice. These are your children. You need to raise your children your way and do what you believe is in the best interest. And part of that is you doing what breathes life into your soul because then you will have more energy to give to your children. But it's so easy to allow parents. It's so easy to allow family members, lovers, friends to discredit our own inner voice. And so what it really means to mature into full adulthood is to trust, begin to trust the very thing that I've been taught to distrust. All right, much more to come right after this short break. I counseled with Badass Counseling for about four months and Sven completely turned my life around. He kicked my butt, no shit. He made me do homework too, but I was so ready for a change that I just did it all. I'm telling you, he changed my life. Thank you so much, Badass Counseling. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Uh, here we go. Noids asks or says, months after a breakup, I'm still grieving. I don't want to work. Nothing feels good. Nothing works. That's exactly right. And you want to know why nothing feels good and nothing works? It's Yes, it's because of the breakup. But what breakups do, as with losing a job you love or any sort of loss or death, um, is that there's pain inside. And the pain covers over our joy sources. It doesn't matter how many joy sources you have in your life. You know, oh, I love my job. Oh, I, you know, love my friends and I love where I live and so forth. But if you've got massive pain, you won't be able to appreciate those things you love. It's sort of the one of the working definitions of depression, that you no longer take joy in the things you formerly took joy in. And that's one of the things that a, a hard breakup will do. You're saying you're grieving. Yeah, you are grieving. The question is, are you actually grieving? Are you just letting it out in fits and spurts when it comes up, the pain over it? Or are you actively engaged in methods for flushing the pain out? Because you still have probably two feet back in that relationship, right? But that relationship is gone, right? After the breakup. And so you've got to flush out all of your pain and all of your sadness, letter writing, journaling, going to counseling, talking it out with your best friend. And the more you deliberately and actively do that, the more your grieving will be facilitated. But you guys, you can't short-circuit grief. You can't say, oh, I'm done with that. No, you're not done with it until you actually get all the pain out of you because until it's out of you, it's still in you. Next question. All right. Uh, I know a lot of people can uh, relate to this. Flow 7 says, my sister controls my parents to the point they have disowned me and yell at me. 
all right, I actually see that a lot. Um, one family member controlling another or family members being disowned and so forth. And tragically, I actually see relationships where a kid or an adult kid controls parents. And then that gets leveraged against other kids and so forth. So you are saying my sister controls my parents to the point they have disowned me and yell at me. You don't state a question for that, but you're stating a problem, which I completely understand. And that has to bring sadness for you um, at the loss of your parents, I'm assuming, and uh, and the rejection, the betrayal by your parents, but also the betrayal by your sim- your sister. And if you're being honest, I have to believe anger towards your sister potentially even hatred or rage towards your sister for basically turning people that you love against you and people that you thought loved you. But what's also really interesting about that equation isn't just the anger and the sadness of the loss of your parents. You have to be angry at your parents. Are you being honest with yourself? There's really no way in hell you could experience this situation unless your parents are absolutely uh, not in control of their senses. I mean, like they have some severe mental illness, um, which I don't wish on anybody, and that's horrible stuff, that such that both of them don't have the capacity to take care of themselves because otherwise, if they are disowning you and yelling at you, apart from some mental capacity that renders them unable to think for themselves, all right? Apart from that, the mere fact that they are letting your sister control them and disown you, if you're being honest deep down, there's not only pain over that, but there's anger. I mean, I think that roughly any person in that situation, if they were being honest with themselves, would be angry at your parents, at my own parents, and they did that to me, saying, fucking grow up, be the fucking adults, take control of this situation, and don't give in to my sister. Why are you so letting her control you? Carrie Flo says, my sister controls my parents to the point they have disowned me and yell at me. There'd have to be anger there at your parents, that they're basically abdicating their power to your sister. And turning on you. Yeah, you got a massive amount of pain and anger and hurt in a lot of directions. And if you are not actively getting that pain and anger and hurt and frustration and betrayal out of you, it's just sitting in you and it's just going to fucking fester. Furthermore, the mere fact that you say they have disowned me and yell at me. Disowned is an ending of a relationship. And then you say, and they yell at me. So that says the relationship is still going on. So is the relationship disowned and done? Or is it still going on and you're getting yelled at? And my question then is, why are you allowing yourself to continue to get yelled at? That seems to imply that you're wanting to perpetuate the relationship with your parents and they keep pushing you away. And my question is, why do you keep trying to perpetuate a relationship with your parents when they keep pushing you away and yelling at you? And and then I want to ask the question, what is it you're still wanting from them? Well, I want a relationship with them. Of course you want a relationship with them. But you're wanting a relationship with someone who doesn't want a relationship with you, who you claim. Your parents are being uh, controlled by your sister. And, and as a result, they have disowned you and they yell at you. And that's got to be enormously painful. You wouldn't have brought up, the, brought up the yelling at you unless in all likelihood it's painful. And, of course, the disowning is painful too. And yet you keep in conversation with them and they keep yelling at you, which implies you're still wanting something from them. See, that's where we go get into trouble in life. And that's where, you know, the Buddhists sort of have a fucking leg up or in their thinking. And I'm not Buddhist, but I'll fucking steal from anybody. And they talk about, you know, all life is suffering and suffering is the result of clinging. And you can argue on the wording of that doesn't matter. The bottom line is the things that we hold on to have the power to cause us the most pain because when we don't get them, we're stuck in a, a state of longing, wanting. We're cleaving to, we're holding on to something. And when someone has something we want, it has, they have the power to cause us pain by, to cause us misery by withholding the very thing we want. So when you say, 
you're wanting, you're basically saying, my parents have disowned me and yell at me, yell at me. That's obviously a point of pain and you're wanting their love back and clearly you're not going to get it. And the more you keep holding on, the more you're going to have pain. And so really the task is to flush out all of the emotions that you have and deep pain and anger you have towards sister, towards mom and towards dad and betrayal and disappointment and all of that and keep flushing it out. And then at some point, uh, I mean, if you were a client of mine, I'd say you got to walk away. I mean, you can keep holding on, but it's just going to bring more pain. You have a pattern of behavior that you can stay in relationship, but they're going to keep punching you in the face. So it's like you're hanging on to their collar, wanting them to hug you, and they just keep hitting you in the face while you're holding on to their collar. And so the hardest thing in this situation, yet the most necessary thing for your own sanity is to let go of their collar. But you're not ready to do that because you're still wanting something from them. You're still wanting the love that they're not giving. And as long as you want that, they're going to keep punching you in the face. You have that pattern of behavior. So you have to get out of you those feelings of longing, the feelings of pain, and so on and so forth, because that's what keeps you in that uh, suffering-filled situation. All right, next question. What have we got? John asks, is this why I can't stop thinking about her? Shit drives me crazy, he says. We still have contact due to a son. Um, yeah, it's why you keep thinking about her. It's because you haven't let your fucking pain out. You haven't let all your sadness out. You haven't grieved. You guys got to understand, anytime you lose something, my ears are cold. Anytime you lose something, it's grief. The natural human emotion is grief. You can say, oh, I don't feel grief. That's bullshit. It's a feeling. And there are, <laughs> there are patterns in human experience that when we lose something that we care about, when something, when the gods, the universe, whatever, life wrenches our grip open and yanks from us this thing that was important to us. Maybe it's your dog. I have three dogs, right? Maybe it's my Rhodesian Ridgeback Gunner. When Gunner dies, it will be like the gods have ripped him from my hands and I will grieve. The natural response to losing something that we hold to a, a, something that we get love from or something that we give love to. I give love to Gunner. Gunner gives love to me. Sloppy kisses, right? And, uh, and that sort of thing and play and companionship. And it will break my heart. Grieving is a natural response to having something wrenched from your grip, some sort of loss. And that's why breakups are so hard and they require grieving. That's why a death is so hard and requires grieving because we've lost something that's important. And if you do not grieve, that pain stays inside. If you do not grieve, the pain stays inside and you can think, oh, fuck that. I'm tough. I can take it. Really? Take that one for a spin for about two or three decades. Then tell me you can take it. Anybody can take pain. We're, we're enculturating this generation and it's nothing new. It was done when I, back in the seventies, when I was a youngster, it was done in the fifties. It's nothing new. This, oh, you just got to be tough, but it doesn't work long term. It doesn't work. Just being tough doesn't work. You have to flush it out. The people who are the strongest are the ones who have gotten their pain out so they're no longer bogged down by that 500-pound bag of rocks of all the pain sources from their past. You And when you're, you know, teens and 20s and even 30s, it hasn't all totally added up yet in a lot of cases, but it will. All right, next question. What have you guys got for me? All right. My husband is grieving for his mother. Listen to it. Wait for it, you guys. And taking it out on me and our kids. No more in love, 24 years. Oof. I'll read it. I'll just read it straight now. My husband is grieving for his mother and taking it out on me and our kids. No more love. No more in love, 24 years. You've been married for 24 years. You have kids. You're no longer in love with your husband, I'm assuming. Or is it your husband's no longer in love with you? I'm going to assume you're no longer in love. And your husband's grieving for his mother and he's taking it out on me and our kids. That's not okay. And uh, either A, you have to stand up to them uh, for the benefit of your kids, and especially if they are minor children, um, you have to. 
or you have to get out of there. You have to. Why? Because the job of the parent is to eat the bullets so that the children don't. And I'm adamant on this one. I am not, um, I don't equivocate on this one. If there is abuse or if children are being harmed, all bets are off. You have to get the fuck out or you have to shut that shit down. All right. Now that comes with its own fears. Right. And, uh, you know, but the kids are more important than me, the parent. That's the bottom line. Um, but to your point, your husband is grieving his mother taking it out on me and our kids. I'm no more in love. It's been 24 years basically of marriage. You have to stop it or you have to end the fucking relationship. And is it hard to end a 24 year fucking relationship Un unequivocally? Yes, of course. Indisputable. Are there massive amounts of complex feelings surrounding any relationship of 24 years, let alone an intimate marriage of 24 years that I'm no longer in love with? Do you have a massive amount of feelings and all of that shit has to be unpacked? Yes, 100%. But the bottom line is, if it's happening, you have to. You don't have a choice. You have to end this fucking relationship. And it's a hard task to do. I'm not disputing that. I'm not saying your task is easy, but your task is necessary nonetheless. And the biggest tasks in life aren't easy, but they are necessary. And I want to bring up one other thing. Shara says, my husband is grieving for his mother and taking it out on me and our kids. No more in love, 24 years. Um, that your husband is taking his grief about his mother dying out on me and on the kids seems odd after 24 years that a new pattern would develop. Now, significant pain, significant trauma can cause new things to occur in sort of personality um, flow in a person's character and who they are. Yes, major trauma can cause new things, but I'm inclined to ask the question. I'm inclined to wonder, is this actually a new pattern of behavior where your husband takes pain out on you, where your husband takes pain out on your kids? Because so often in life, even though trauma can cause new patterns of behavior and often does, if you've been with this person for 24 years, let's say you got married in your late 20s, just on average, so you're in your late 40s, early 50s, right? You've got kids and now his mother dies. Well, if he's in his late 50s, let's say his mom had him when she was 25 or he's in his early 50s. I'm just spitballing. That means mom's 70, 75. Yes, that's early to die. Agreed. But also not extraordinarily out of the ordinary. Now the numbers could be off and so on and so forth. But I guess what I find myself wondering is, is this actually a new pattern of behavior caused by the death of a uh, parent? You said your husband is taking his grief about his mother out on you and your kids. And I'm wondering, is this a new pattern of behavior or has he done this before in the past? Has he taken his pain out on you and out on your kids? If you were my client, that would be the first question I'd be asking you. Has he done this before? Because a lot, I don't know. I tend to believe that things that are happening five or 10 years in the relationship have always been there. Whether or not I saw him, whether or not I did anything is something different. But if this is a pattern that has happened before where your husband was taking out his pain on you and the kids, then we've got a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is, and I'm not trying to be a dick, but why did you allow it? Why did you allow in the past your husband to take his pain out on you? Now, I'm not saying you caused it. That's different. That's blaming the victim. Listen to my language here, people, before you get on a tirade. This isn't blaming the victim. I'm not saying, what did you do to cause your husband to treat you this way? I'm asking, what were you conditioned to believe about yourself that caused you to allow someone to treat you this way? See, when I work with victims of abuse, and I've had thousands of them over the years, 
when I work with people who are victims of conditioning, what they were taught to believe about themselves by their parents growing up or whoever raised them, that the way you empower a victim is by helping them understand what the core beliefs are that have been driving their behavior, causing them to allow someone to mistreat them. So for instance, earlier I was talking on this text, on this live, I was talking about with the person who said your, her parents are pushing her to get married. And my, if she were my client and what I was driving at in my conversation with that uh, woman is, um, what's going on inside of you that is causing you to allow someone to transgress your boundaries, to trespass? When you said, please don't push me to get married, what is it is go that's going on in you that is causing you to allow your parents to continue to do that? Because that belief, whatever's going on inside of you is short-circuiting what's in your best interest. So the way I help you create better patterns in the future, the way I help you uh, treat your husband differently and treat yourself differently in future relationships, and in this one, and setting up boundaries and so forth, is by finding what is it you've been taught to believe about yourself and your own lack of worth or your own lack of mattering that is causing you to allow this sort of shit in your life and worst, causing you to allow this shit to be taken out on your own children. See, it's these deeper questions, you guys, you got to be looking at. It's what we're conditioned to believe about ourselves, And this is why I talk about in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, which I don't have a copy out here with me today, but this is what makes my counseling different from most other therapists. I'm not just uh, dealing with getting your pain out. I don't teach coping skills. I don't believe in coping. Because if you're still coping, you're not healed. I, I'm, I'm trying to fucking heal people. Nothing wrong with teaching coping skills. Just not my thing. Um, but the bottom line is, unlike most therapists, I'm not trying to get your pain out and your fears out. I'm in the business of getting down to what the core beliefs are that are driving your life, that are driving your misery, that are keeping you in shitty situations, that are causing you to make decisions in your own life that you're not, you don't want anymore or that you maybe never wanted to begin with. So much is happening down here at the soul level, this notion of what are my core beliefs? And of course, most people don't have no fucking clue what their core beliefs are. And, and the truth is your actual core beliefs, most people can't even fucking see because it's the shit that gets programmed into us that we're not even fucking aware of. And I'm not talking about the explicit stuff. I'm talking about the implicit messages we get that get pressed into the wet cement of our soul and harden and become sort of the uh, virus infecting the operating system of who we are. Now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. You've heard Sven talk a lot about his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And that's because Sven hears from his followers a lot about how much the book has helped them. If you're not sure how to handle the issues getting in the way of a better life, you're not alone. And you have a lot of choices, but thousands of readers will tell you that this is a great place to start by yourself and at your own pace. So go to badasscounseling.com and order There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and you'll have Sven right there with you as you forge your best future. It's totally badass. So get started today. Now back to more Badass Counseling with Sven. Oh, right. You know that growing up in Minnesota a million years ago, these were always my favorite times of year when the sun is out, but it's cold as fuck. And you know, the cold as fuck is precisely because there are no clouds, right? Because in the northern climes, uh, the clouds act as sort of a blanket. They keep the earth's heat in. So when those are gone, as we would regularly get in January and early February in Minnesota, those were often very, very clear, yet the coldest, 30 below motherfucking days um and the snow is crunchy and shit and it fucking burns your lungs and you go out you know for a run or something or go ride your bike as some crazy fuckers do 
it just fucking scorches your lungs and shit. But I love these days where it's cold and it's sunny. It's just like, ah, oh, it's not the gray skies. All right. Anyway, I know you don't care, but whatever. My fiance's widow mother won't let her children leave the house without disowning them. Is this norm? In other words, is this normal? Um, this is such a great question because it's so easy. You're not asking me, how do I deal with it? What should I do? You just say, is this normal? No, no, no. My fiance's widow mother won't let her children leave the house without disowning them. Is this normal? No, I don't know of any version of normal. And, you know, I'm not the most worldly guy, but I don't know a lot of cultures where you literally get disowned if you leave the house. Okay. But that's not really the issue is whether or not it's normal. Um, that's not really the issue. The issue is what the fuck do you do? How do you deal with this when your fiance's widow mother basically is in serious control of her own children, specifically your uh, fiance? And the truth is you're dealing with someone who is trying to control her children and basically saying, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. And if you leave me, I'm going to disown you. In other words, leveraging her position, leveraging the fact that the child, every child wants a relationship with the parents until the parents do something to cause that child not to. The children will endure all manner of shit to try to keep that relationship with the parents. Why? The child is always wanting the love. The child is always wanting the acceptance. The child is always wanting the approval. And so your fiance is in a situation with a mother where the mother doesn't want her to leave. In other words, you have to stay near me and pour love into my love cup. I don't know my book is there's a hole in my love cup, right? And then so what's basically happening is the job of the parent is to pour love into the love cup of the child. But this is, but very often that equation becomes inverted and the parent starts using the child to pour love into the parent's love cup. But that's not a child's job, not even an adult child. Yes, when your parent is getting older and needs to be taken care of, assuming you've been a loving parent, that child will gladly take care of the parent, right? Um, Assuming it's been a loving and good parent. But what we've got here is this is the parent not wanting any of the children to leave. Presumably, well, why would a parent not want the children to leave? Clearly, some need is being met or some fear is being enacted. I don't want you to leave. Why? In all likelihood, because the parent is getting, the widow mother is getting her love needs met through her own children. And at some point, really, the question is up to your fiance, whether she has the courage to stand up and be disowned by her mother, whether she has the courage to stand up. Either that or you're going to have to go live under your um, mother-in-law's roof. Now, you can do that. God bless you. Go for it. But you already know how controlling this person is. So it begs the question, why the fuck would you want to live under the roof of somebody that fucking controlling? You want some fucking misery in your life? You've already got enough misery by this question. My fiance's widow mother won't let her children leave the house without disowning them. Is this normal? No, it's not fucking normal. All right. So you already see this is someone who you will exercise her power to use control. And the mere fact that you're asking the question, is this normal, says that you are susceptible to thinking that that might be normal, which says you're in turn susceptible to someone who is exercising that much power. I can tell you for a fact, the last fucking thing you want is to get into a relationship with any person who is still controlled by a parent. You don't want that. All right. And I know plenty of people are nodding their heads saying, fucking right, Sven. Because it's so, there's so much power that a parent exercises on a kid, even when that kid is 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. And I get clients who are in their fucking 50s, for instance, when some older than that, who are still being controlled by an 80-year-old parent, right? Controlled. And that's what you're walking into. And the truth is, 
ultimately it's a test of your fiance. If your fiance doesn't have the courage to draw boundaries and enforce those boundaries with her own mother. In other words, if your fiance doesn't have the courage to not get her needs met for love, because basically her mother is willing to say, I'm not going to give you your fucking love. If you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm not going to give you love. And that's heartbreaking as a kid as an adult kid, but you have to be willing to face that. Otherwise you are basically saying, I'm going to let my mother control me. I want to let my mother control me, even if at the expense of our fucking relationship, you are asking me, is it normal that your fiance's widow mother won't let the children leave the house without stoning them? No, it's not. And if you continue to walk further into that relationship, you are walking further. I'm telling you as absolute fact, you are walking further into a shit show of your own choosing. You may think this is going to get better by itself. It's not. I'm telling you for fact, this is not going to magically go away. This is not going to magically heal itself. Then until you stand up to your fiance and say, we, you and me, sweetheart, we drive the future of our relationship. And if you are going to kowtow to your mother at the expense of our relationship, I have to go. I'm not saying you have to cut off your mother, but if she's threatening you, she's basically saying, I'm going to control you and I'm going to control your relationship with me, your fiance. It's like, dude, you don't fucking want that. Trust me when I tell you, you know, I'm an old fucker and, and I, you know, old fucker and there's a lot of shit I don't know, but a lot of the old fuckers know from shit relationships and controlling spouses and other stuff. We know shit from experience that you might be kind of guessing at. I'm just telling you flat out on behalf of the other OGs listening today, you don't want to walk into a relationship where someone is being controlled by their parent. Trust me. All right. I'm going to take one more question and then I'm going to go warm up. Um, I got these fucking heating things. And the thing is, I can't put five of them down each fucking finger. So you put it in the palm, but my little fucking fingers still freeze. This is why growing up in Minnesota, I never got into hockey. And I love hockey. It's my favorite spot, sport to watch. But I never, I never enjoyed being outside because I'm always fucking cold. And it's my extremities, my little toes. I got two fucking heaters in each of my shoes right now. Yet my toes are still cold. My fingers are cold, even though I got these fucking heaters in a big fucking Sherpa fucking coat, man. All right. How do you deal with the sadness of your truth without knowing what your truth is? I mean, it's... Sadness, if you know what your truth is, if you know what your calling is in life or know what you have to do, the only reason it would cause sadness is basically what you have to let go of. Letting go of anything, as we talked about earlier, that wrenching open of your grip and letting go of something or that saying, I don't want this in my life or I don't want this person in my life anymore. Yes, it comes with sadness. How do you deal with the sadness? You let that sadness out and not just in the crying. Crying is so important and it's very cathartic and so on and so forth, but you have to go into those feelings, give words to the feelings. Why does music so touch us? Why does music have the power to transform us? It's not just this confluence of notes that speak to our soul. When I listen to great rap when I work out, it moves me, or classic rock, 70s rock when I'm working out, right? Or some, you know, 80s rock. Or when I listen to much of my fucking playlist, when I'm listening and having dinner or cocktails, it's jazz, right? And I'm nowhere near a jazz aficionado. It's just a nice sound. But the shit that really moves me and inspires my creativity and the shit that has written my books is fucking Mozart, man. Bach, classical, it moves me. But the thing is, when it comes to healing, um, I just had a client today saying, Sven, I was in like ninth grade and that's when I discovered the music of Eminem. And Sven, it just gave words to all of my rage. It gave words to my anger that I couldn't find my own words for. And not just rage, but anger towards my mother and how I was being treated and so on and so forth. 
And this young woman, you know, was saying, you know, I just have rage towards, and Eminem spoke my words. I've had other people say Metallica or Megadeth or fucking, you know, back in the day, the fucking Stones or Zeppelin or, you know, whatever, or, you know, fucking Nelly or, you know, whatever. The bottom line is it's words strung together and expressing an emotion that is my emotion, that is my feeling. It's giving words to my experience. The great uh, writer C.S. Lewis once said, we read to know that we are not alone. It's a brilliant thought, isn't it? That there's something, there's a universality to people describing their experiences, telling their stories, and words matter. Giving words to that which we're experiencing. And so I'm going back to this question that was put out here by Throwbackism. It says, how do you deal with the sadness of your truth? You find the words for it. And this is why I'm such an advocate of counseling. You're giving words to your experience. You're being pushed to find deeper words, deeper understanding. And I'm a big believer in journaling and letter writing, giving words to our grief, giving words to our sadness, giving words to our rage, to our hatred, flushing it out, flushing it out, so that my emotions do not control me. I don't know about you, but I make the worst decisions when I'm in a highly charged emotional state. When I'm fucking tired, I make the worst decisions. Why? Because I don't have my fullest energy. When I'm charged with anger, I make bad decisions. When I'm really, really sad, I make bad decisions. When you are full of emotion and strong, passionate feelings, you got worked up in an argument with your lover, guess what? You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to say shit that you're going to regret later. You're going to create, make, escalate the fight. You're going to leave when you should stay. You're going to Throw a plate across the room. All shit you wouldn't be doing if you weren't so charged with emotions. So that implies, well, shit, maybe it's not a good idea to make decisions when I'm in a highly charged emotional state. Well, then maybe I should learn ways to decharge myself. So let me ask you all today. Do you have methods in place, what I call spiritual disciplines or soul disciplines? Do you have methods in place for decharging yourself? Do you? Do you? See, part of my counseling, I tell every single one of my clients in the first session, my goal is to get you off of my tit. Now, I'll be your therapist as long as you want, but my goal is to get you standing on your own two feet as quickly as possible. I got a, a few young people that I'm working with now lately, like, you know, 15 of them, whatever, off and on over the last several months. And one of them, I was telling just this week, um, my goal is to help you start learning the questions you need to be asking yourself when you're in that, those states so that you can decharge yourself. My goal is to get you engaging in those mechanisms for flushing out all of your pain because you're making profoundly stupid fucking decisions when you are charged with emotion. And if you continue to make um, decisions from that state, in other words, until you teach yourself how to bring your, de-escalate yourself and bring yourself down, you're going to make decisions. You're going to be blowing up your own life as you go. It's like you'll have one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. Stopping, starting, starting, stopping, starting, stop. It's like you don't want to fucking live that way. Anyway, okay, you know what? Listen, I'll take one more question maybe if there's one that just sort of piques my interest. Yeah, first therapist I've heard say that off my tit. Yeah, I mean, that's my goal. My goal isn't to keep you on. I have high turnover with my clients. Why? My goal is to get you to be able to do this shit yourself. It's my business model. A lot of therapists, their business model is to extend the therapy as long as possible so I can keep drawing a paycheck off you. My Mine is just the opposite. Mine is to actually heal you and turn your life around as quickly as possible. 
Why? Because then when your cousin or your brother or your neighbor is in a hard place and they're like, who should I go to? You'll be very inclined to say, oh, go to that meathead named Sven because he actually gets results and he gets them quickly. And he taught me skills to move forward in life so that maybe I check in with him, you know, once every year or two, but I, he had taught me how to do it myself. That's kind of the goal, right? What's that old proverb? Was it by Lao Tzu? Um, who said, um, the mark of the good leader, something along these lines, I'm sure I'm butchering the language, but the mark of a good leader is that when the task is done, the people say, we did it ourselves. I like that. I like that. It's not about me, the leader. It's helping people to do it themselves and to realize and to feel that sense of accomplishment. Um, so anyway, here's the last question of the day, you guys. How can I change my narcissistic fiance getting us into a healthy relationship? How can I change my narcissistic fiance getting it and get us basically into a healthy relationship? You concede that your uh, fiance is narcissistic. Now, I am going to assume that you are using that sort of in the term narcissistic is one of those incredibly abused words uh, nowadays as a person who studied both uh, <laughs> ancient Greek in my undergraduate and Koine Greek in my uh, in graduate school and who studied the classics. You know, in the Greek language, my father majored in Greek in college and so forth. So as a person who studied the classics, I understand the narcissist story and echo from a different perspective. And then there's psychology, which has been talking about narcissism for 150 years. And then there's like the last 10 years where all of a sudden every single person is a narcissist. You ever heard that? I mean, people, please stop using that word. I mean, do what you want. But I'm going to assume here that you are not saying you're fiance is a diagnosed narcissist. That's a very, very small percentage of the population. I don't like the word narcissist. I like the term extreme taker. That's how I describe it. And if you guys have seen my video on that, if you haven't, go on my TikTok videos. And it's either the first or the second one where I talk about if you've ever been broken up from a narcissist before. And then I, I redefine in there, I, I talk about extreme takers and how extreme takers um, basically tend to find extreme givers. So if you're in a relationship, uh, David, with an extreme taker, in all likelihood, you're somewhat of an extreme giver, I'm willing to bet. And you're saying, how can I change my narcissistic fiance and get us into a healthy relationship? In all honesty, listen, I'm going to just play the odds here. Is there a chance you could change your narcissistic uh, fiance, your extreme taker fiance? Is there a chance? Yes. But I'm going to play the odds for you. The odds of you changing your narcissistic fiance are very, very slim, especially because in all likelihood, if your fiance is an extreme taker, you're likely an extreme giver. And so the notion of standing up to her is not something you find savory. You don't like the idea, which means you are in a relationship that you acknowledge. My fiance in this relationship is a narcissist. Why are you continuing down a road further into a relationship with someone that you already acknowledge as a narcissist or are you already acknowledge she's an extreme taker? Why are you continuing this relationship? You're wanting to change her, but the mere fact that you're already engaged implies you've had a relationship for what? A year? Four years? You've been in a relationship with this person for a while and you've seen the pattern of extreme taking. You've seen the narcissistic pattern and it hasn't changed. And you're wanting to change it. You're wanting a healthy relationship, which obviously by saying that, you're saying we have an unhealthy relationship. I have an unhealthy relationship with a person who exhibits narcissistic behavior. And it's gone on over a period of time, right? This didn't happen last night. Oh, she did this one time and now I need to know how to change our relationship. No, no, no. You're saying this is a pattern. 
her extreme taking and our unhealthy relationship is a pattern over time. And I'm telling you that I'm guessing you've already stood up to her and said, hey, this needs to change. Or sweetheart, can you please stop doing that? Or you stood up for yourself already, I'm assuming. And if you haven't, well, you have to start standing up for yourself. And you have to hold those boundaries. And you have to say no. And you need to pull away when the person doesn't honor your boundaries. When the person doesn't honor your needs, you have to have the courage to stand up. And the way you'll fix it in your next relationship, or to those of you who are in new relationships, you always fix it at the beginning. You don't fix it a year in or four years or 10 years in. It's too late. The patterns have already been set in place. We change relationships. We change how people treat us at the beginning of a relationship when we don't allow it. You have to be very, very firm. You've stated you're in a relationship with a narcissist, which means they've been exhibiting a pattern of behavior over time. So you've got a pattern of behavior. You've got a trajectory for the relationship that has been going on over time. You're trying to fix it now, even though I'm guessing you've already stood up for yourself before and the person hasn't changed. So you've got a pattern of behavior. You have clear evidence and you're trying to change it and trying to change it to no avail. And at what point do you listen to the evidence? At what point do you look at the evidence for what it is? And that is that this person is not going to change and or that I don't have the power to change it. The odds are you can't really change a narcissist. What changes narcissists is extreme pain. The extreme pain of life happening to them or them seeing what they are doing to others around them. Very often, the one thing that breaks narcissists is when they are alone because no one wants to fucking be around them anymore. But the idea that you have any sort of power in this relationship is there some? Yes. But if you're an extreme giver in all likelihood, it's so unsavory to you that you wouldn't exercise it. But you basically have to pull away from anyone in your life who mistreats you. And you calling this person a, a narcissist and that it's an unhealthy relationship, you're flat out stating this person mistreats you. And yet you are staying in it until you walk away. You will continue to allow this person to treat you this way. And you will continue down the trajectory of a relationship that is unhealthy and obviously unfulfilling for you. And as I said to the person just a minute ago on such a relationship, don't do it. You need to end the relationship. You need to set your terms and not back down on your terms. But I'm betting that's probably terrifying to you, isn't it? But at the very least, just get the hell out of this relationship because it's only going to get worse. David, as the last person I'm, I'm answering a question of today, do yourself a favor, brother. You have to, and I know it's going to break your heart to walk away. You obviously love this person very much. And breaking a, uh, uh, a, a betrothal, breaking a relationship with someone you're uh, affianced to is hard to do. And you feel stupid, et cetera, et cetera. But this person won't change without extreme counseling. And I'm betting they're unwilling to do that. And you're just walking into decades of a shit show ahead. Wow, what an episode. Holy cow. This is great. Uh, we want to say thank you to all of our listeners all around the world and for all your questions and your comments. And, and this is just such a great experience for us. And we are grateful for you. And we mean that very sincerely. So on behalf of the entire team, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Kick-ass day.